Thanks. That was uh, very kind. Thank you. Uh, good evening. My name is Nancy. I'm a grateful alcoholic. Hi, Nancy. Happy to be here. Happy to see you here. Isn't this a great weekend? I have heard so much strength and loving sharing this weekend. I'm just having a ball. I'm just having a ball. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you, Dave, for uh, the invite. And uh, thank the committee. Um, it's a privilege to share in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we are men and women who have lost the ability to control and enjoy our drinking. And you have no idea how much jeopardy this sign behind me was in of being uh, wigs and dresses put on the characters here. <laughs> this conspiracy was thwarted by the specter of the night step, you know. <laughs> but I'm a happy, grateful alcoholic, and I, you know, I've always been a talker. I used to drink and talk, you know, and I might as well be sober and talk, you know, it, uh, Talk, talk, talk. And actually, one of our pieces of literature, Members I View, says that we get sick with our mouths. We might as well get well with our mouths. You know, and I'm always, you know, I'm always glad to come out and share my story with you and what's happened to me and tell you about the person that AA built. Because um, I was in trouble all my life before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I really was. I was a lost kid. I was an old child. Do you know what I mean? I've been an old child. You know, and I just, just kind of felt I was tired when I was five. You know, I said, God, <laughs> life is hard. You know, <laughs> actually, this thing, I, I, my theory is that I'm a born alcoholic. Now you might want to you know, argue about that. We can argue later. But I have some data to support my belief because my mom carried me in the womb for ten months. I think that's born alcoholism. You know, I must have been in there going, no, <laughs> I don't want to be born. <laughs> it's going to be awful. <laughs> Primordial knowledge, you know. <laughs> I'm going to be drinking and it's just, I don't want to go. <laughs> However, I was born. <laughs> and uh, with all these Irish Catholics, you know. Now, I'll tell you that my mom and dad were from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they drove out to California, and they had two little girls, my two older sisters, and I was born out in California. My dad was a newspaper writer. He had a byline on the Pittsburgh Press, and they moved out to have a big job on the Los Angeles Times, and life was so exciting in the early 50s, you know, and they had a like a little white picket fence, and, you know, it was going to be great. And when I was 18 months old, he fell on the floor, and he died from his second coronary. And um, and I grew up in this family, and my mom was devastated by this, you know, and her family wanted to separate the girls and everybody come back east, but she said, no, we'll keep them together. I can do this. And so she raised us by herself out there in California. And um, I grew up around her, you know, this kind of really sad feelings in the house. And um, when I was... Some of the oldest feelings that I remember are feelings of the sadness, you know, the loneliness and feeling um, afraid and not being good enough. And a lot of the, the feelings that I have from my earliest recollection are sad. And when I was five years old, I got my first miracle. I discovered that I could sing. I was walking along and I was holding my mom's hand, holding my aunt's hand. I was walking along the beach one day 
And I burst into song when I was five years old. And I started singing Pat Boone's Love Letters in the Sand. I don't know if you remember that. I was just piping away in my little voice. And, and you know, the miracle was that they stopped talking to each other and ignoring me, and they started to listen to me. And, of course, this is great for the alcoholic to be, you know. And I, I realized that this was one way I could count in the family. I could, I, my job, my mission was to be a singer, you know. And I went to Catholic school, and I was a wonderful little Catholic school girl, you know. And uh, But I always had this loneliness around the edge of me, you know. And I always tried a little bit hard, and I always could see people's answers for people's problems, you know, and I'd always share, and I had a high voice, and no one listened to me, and I'd be frustrated. I spent a lot of time in the backyard by myself playing with imaginary playmates, who are still the best playmates. (laughs) (laughs) Then when I was 13 years old, tragedy struck. Puberty set in. And I had no information. I'd grown up with all these Irish Catholic normal dysfunctional women. I say normal dysfunctional because everybody has issues now, you know. Everybody has issues. I I wonder what happened to normal people. Where do they meet? (laughs) And what do they say? Had a normal day today. Yeah. Anyway, our little family was, a, my mom was a strong, wonderful Irish woman, and she was, we just, just nobody talked to each other. Puberty set in. I didn't know about the birds and the bees or dates or makeup. I didn't know anything. And I just, this frustration was growing in me like a ball. And I just, now I know this was rage, and I didn't understand it. I had nobody to talk to, and it seemed like everybody was lying to me. And I just lashed out. And I went overnight from being a very, very good girl to being a very, very bad girl. I ran around with the other hoodlums in Catholic school. And there was no gradual progression. You just, you know. And I was there. And they thought I was funny. And we started smoking cigarettes. And they told me about the birds and the bees. And One morning on the way to the Catholic school, we stole some vodka from my best friend's mom. We took it in the bathroom at 10.15 recess. And I'll never forget that moment. Man, you know, I just, I, I just, all my, when I had my first drink, all my Irish DNA said, yes! (laughs) It was most agreeable. I was in no training programs for this disease. It was a yes right away, you know. And it was this, it was the answer. You know, that, it was the answer. It was great. Drinking worked right away, just very pleasantly. I felt awfully good. I felt gracious. I felt smart. I felt pretty. I felt courageous. I felt that, you know, even that the care center, I didn't feel like I didn't care if they didn't like me. I felt, I felt cool enough and tough enough. And all my little friends were looking at me like, you know, I was somebody. I love the look of coolness. Also, we were sharing this illegal moment. I'm sure, I don't know if anyone here has ever shared a crime with anybody, but you know, it's a little bit of a crime to be drinking vodka in the bathroom when you're 13 years old at Catholic school. So, we were, (laughs) 
sharing the excitement that any minute now that nun was going to burst through the door and oh, hell would break loose. It was wonderful. And then the bell rang, you know, and I went back to religion class. And I sat down in that room and I turned my will and my life over to the care of that moment in the bathroom when that booze went down and took care of all this trouble. Took care of those feelings. Because I drank because of my feelings. I could not stand, I could not stand unmedicated life. Couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand it. And the next year I was in public school and I was working on my image, you know. I was being a bad girl and I ratted my hair real high. And you know, it was, a, it was the mid-60s and I had this, it was actually, I became a victim. You know, I like the idea of alcoholics as victims, you know, and I, I was a victim of fashion because the, <laughs> the beatniks were on their way out and the hippies were on their way in and I was kind of caught in the middle. You know, I had some very strange clothes and I had, <laughs> wore this great big black eyeliner like Elizabeth Taylor was wearing and wore this white lipstick. I don't know how many of you remember white lipstick, but we wore this white lipstick. It was so white that your lips came in the room before you did. <laughs> and I thought I was just, you know, I, it was, it was. Oh man, I discovered older boys and 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 beer parties and, and man, we were just we were, and I became a thief. <laughs> It's the only organization in the world that laugh at that, you know. I just <laughs> I had these magic fingers, and I, you know, I stole things, and I um, I saw my first therapist when I was 15 years old, and um, I broke my mother's heart over and over and over again. I got in uh, Glenwood High School. I received D stops, which is a polite "we'll pass you, but never come back here again." And I was, uh, I was in big trouble. I was already beyond human power, human help. And I remember looking at this therapist when I was 15 years old and she was just far, far away. I'll never forget that, you know. And, um, I discovered a great cure for living in Glendale, which was a nice little, uh, burg in the 60s. And, um, that cure was going to Hollywood. And I loved to go to Hollywood. I was just, Hollywood was great. And they had these coffee houses in the 60s in Hollywood. And they were just wonderful. You know, they were, they weren't like, I don't know, do you have Starbucks? Yeah. Well, the coffee houses in the 60s were not like Starbucks, you know. We had, these were like dens of iniquity. And it was like, everything was dark in there and it was always smoky and your hands stuck to all the furniture. And it was like, but it was great, you know, and everybody stood around the corners and lied to each other, you know. And we talked about Sartre and Kierkegaard, you know. But the great thing was the music, because the music in the 60s was, you know, the culture was exploding with this this change in, in every way, in women's rights and civil rights and the music and all this kind of thing. But I only was focused on the music exploding. And I mean, and we just got in these little dark places and, and these little beatnik houses and coffee houses, and we sat around corners singing radical Songs like Puff the Magic Dragon, you know, so, so, so. <laughs> Heavy times, you know. And I, 
again, I, I had a disastrous high school record. I got a, a, I received a partial scholarship to the California Institute of the Arts and Music, and it meant absolutely nothing to me. It meant absolutely zero to me, because I had already found how I wanted to live. I found a way of life. I was doing it a day at a time, and, you know, I just found a way to live. I wanted to be on the outside. I never wanted to be in the middle of things. I've never wanted to be resemble anything. I always loved these artists. I loved these writers. I loved these outsiders, because they were all in these coffee houses, these political pipes, and, and beatniks, and radicals, and people who are on the edge. I love people. You know, it's like, it's just like the people in AA. <laughs> the criminals and freaks, you know, it's like us, you know. It's the only place in the world to laugh at this stuff. It's incredible. But I've always loved you. I've always loved you. And I've always trusted you. And I've always hung out with you. And you know, even it was funny because in my first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, who do you think we are? We're the people you drank with. And you are. And I always loved you. And I was just, you know, I've never, I've never even had a martini. That was just far too normal. You know. Oh, I didn't even like ice and things anyway. But, um, I, uh, in my senior year in high school, I'd reached the stage where I was talking to my car. My car understood, you know. And I was trying to come home one night from Hollywood to Glendale. I'm just talking to my car. And, you know, I intuited that I was, a little bit too too far gone to make it all the way home, so I said to the car, "We got to come down," you know. And the car agreed, and uh, I walked into another coffee house there, to, you know, to actually drink coffee, I guess. And and I fell in love. This this little place was called the Scarab, and it was on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles, and it was right by City College. This little joint, and it was packed with these musicians, and they were wonderful. They were wonderful. They were like the the first multicultural group ever. There was somebody from from every place on earth. And they played everything. Everything. They had a bongos and a cello and a flute and an electric piano and a guitar and a drummer and a bass. They had violins and, and they were jamming. And now, you know, they were jamming this rock sound that was new. Jazzers had been jamming for years, but this was this great new sound. It was like coming out at me. And you know me. <laughs> Lampshade on the head and all this. I had to get in on this thing and I just, I just stood up in the middle of the room and I started singing, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. <laughs> and they liked that, you know, and so we did that for a while. They were called, their name was, there were 26 of them and they were called Jay Walker and the Pedestrians. <laughs> yeah. And we actually played once, but it was so hard to stop and start this bunch, we were innately doomed, you know. <laughs> I floated across that high school stage, and it meant nothing to me. Uh, and eight of us broke away from Jaywalk, and we sat up in a little house in Silver Lake in Los Angeles one summer. And we spent that whole summer in music, just in music. And we wrote three 45-minute sets, and we argued about how to govern ourselves, and we argued about what to call ourselves. And that October, instead of going to college, living a normal life, making my mom happy, being a regular kid, that, that October, we went off into rock and roll, and we opened up for Janis Joplin, Big Brother, and the Holding Company, the Whiskey A Go-Go, and we called ourselves Sweetwater. 
And then before we knew it, we had a deal, and we were on Warner Brothers, and we started flying all over the country, and people really loved us. I had an opportunity this weekend to meet a guy from from those days, and hi, hey, yeah, yeah, how are you? We made it, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> We just we just flew all over the country. We had a lot of success, and uh, and people really liked our act. We were we played in all the big rock and roll rooms, and we were the first band to take the stage at Woodstock in 1969, and uh, we were cut out of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> a moment of silence, please. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, we were just having a ball. And what happened inside of me as a person, because after all, that's what really matters, is this, this business of, you know, I just, I was in so much trouble before I had that drink. And then that drink just put me on the longest pause button ever until I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for growing up. I was filled with misinformation about how to be a person by the time you got me. But, you know, in those years, with that success, you know, our book talks about how some of us, you know, success is kind of hard on some of us, and we, we drink more and pull it all down on our heads, and I was soon to do that. But at this time, around the time of Woodstock and so forth, I was inside, I was feeling really vindicated. I was feeling like I showed all those people who'd ever been mean to me, they missed out on knowing the rock star. Nanny, nanny, nanny. You know, I was like, nah. <laughs> I had this going from a strong streak of that, but at the same time, I had another strong streak inside of me, where I live, where you live, inside of me, that was the exact opposite. Because I was always afraid, at the same time that I was arrogant, I was afraid that somebody would find out I wasn't any good at all. You know, and that so describes my alcoholic nature, the arrogance coupled with the inferiority. I didn't know anything about being in the middle. Who Screw the middle. <laughs> and it was always way up here, way down here. We did all this national TV and radio. We played all over the country. And uh, three days after we'd played it, and we would take the Red Skelton show, my life changed forever. I, I got on the freeway, and it was an early December day. California, when it rains lightly, you know, you have a lot of car accidents. You know, they just can't handle it back there. And um, It had been raining lightly all day, and the, and the streets were slick because it raised the oil. And I got on the freeway, and I had a friend with me. And there was, just after I got on the freeway, there was all these fender benders across the freeway, and I couldn't drive my car through. So I stopped my car, and I turned to my friend, and I said, Whew, we made it. And right after I said that, I got hit by a drunk. And he made an accordion out of my Buick. And nothing happened to my friend. And when my car stopped spinning in this, in this evening scene on the freeway, my friend got out and she started wandering around and looked for help for me. And there just happened to be one off-duty nurse in the fender benders who found my friend. And there was one policeman on the scene at the time, and there was one ambulance there. And this, this nurse got around me, and she began to see how much trouble I was in. Because I had pushed that Buick steel up six inches with my bare head. And I was out, and the nurse said, this girl's got to go. And I'm, I'm reporting, because I have no conscious memory of this. And she said, this girl's got to go. And they put me into the ambulance. When they shut the door, I went into grandma's seizures from this terrific blow to my head. And then they took me down to Glendale Memorial Hospital on the one night of the month 
when all the neurologists of Southern California are having their meeting. All the head doctors. And they all worked on me. And they all said, this girl will not live. No one can survive a blow like that. And the whole Irish family came and the priest came. And they put me on all manner of life support. And they even drilled two holes up here. I still got them. I showed them to the hairdresser last year. <laughs> she said, ew. <laughs> and I said, you ought to pay me for that. <laughs> well, you and I know there's a power greater than all the finest neurologists in Southern California. I came out of that coma in 10 days, and I could add 13 and 4, and I knew who Tricky Dick was. But, you know, I permanently lost the use of one of my vocal cords. So I came out of this coma and I had this broken voice. Singer loses her voice, you know. And it was a terrible tragedy for Sweetwater and for me. And I came out of this coma and, you know, you know how we are with the big stuff. And, you know, I really didn't want to know very much about the old accident. And I didn't say, oh, thank God, I know. And I didn't ask for my mom. I came out of this coma and I said, do the papers know? Because I, I was rock and roll. And what's a little brain damage? You know, when you're rock and roll. <laughs> I had brain damage. I had seizures for the next 12 years. My first six years in AA, I had seizures. You know, But I've been all right for a long time. In fact, I don't know if I told you my sobriety date was is June 28, 1976. So I'm sober 21 years in a couple months. I came out of this coma with this loss, and and I don't know what it is about us. We're we're tough, you know, we're survivors, and. And I had six operations on my throat, and I was in the hospital for two months, and Sweetwater was just trembling. And I got out of there, and we um, we tried to stay together. I moved into a little Laurel Canyon room with a piano and a couch, and I started working with two of the finest voice people in the world. One was a doctor, one was a coach. And Sweetwater, uh, we made three albums all together, and then we fell apart. And, and I thought, well, good. I didn't need them anyway, you know. And I, I thought, now I'll get my own deal. And I started running around in Hollywood to get my own deal and learn the publishing business and learn the recording business. And I was never very good at it. But, you know, I didn't know how to live. If I couldn't sing and perform, I didn't know how to live. I had no idea what I would do if I couldn't sing. So I had to get my voice back. And pretty soon I got kind of a style going, you know, and I um, got a new record deal. And I paid cash for a Mercedes. And I got a little rock and roll house in Laurel Canyon. And um, I was still seeing psychiatrists. And I had been just, you know, so focused on this thing. And this new album came out. And uh, I traveled for a year with this new album. And then that label uh, folded. And I said, well, you know, I, I'll, just, I'll just do it again. However, by this time, the disease of alcoholism was really, really starting to Snowball, you know, and our book says it's for female alcoholics sometimes go down quickly, much more quickly, I suppose, 
than then. And this disease was starting to snowball for me. And I was starting to have a lot of problems with it. And I was starting to get a kind of personality changes. I had always been this nice kid, nice Irish kid from Glen who loved to sing the blues, you know. And I'd always been like that. I'd always been a little party animal. I was a happy person, you know, once I had some booze to make me happy. But now I'm starting to have problems with that where I'm getting the personality change. You know, and I, I'm getting a little tired, a little cranky. You know, I had no label now. So I thought, well, I need to look important and I need to look busy. So I met a woman who drank like me. And she had a, a little business on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And I said, well, if we put a phone in your business and if it rings, you say my name. Will you be my secretary? You know, and she said, oh, yeah, I will. You know, we can't drink it together. So, and I, I was tired of bands because I didn't know how to talk to these musicians anymore. They were always fighting. They always wanted to change my music. You know, and I was, I just, I just thought, well, I'm just going to start playing my own piano now. And I met a bass player who smoked a lot of pot and he lost the power of speech, you know, <laughs> behind all this pot. So that was a good combination. And, I tried booking us around out there, you know, and having these drinking parties with this secretary. It was awful. I was at the end of our drinking. You remember the end of our drinking, where the loneliness and the madness were sometimes your guests and you didn't want them to be there, and where you didn't really know what was going to happen. I was starting to not know how it was going to be. I could be drinking all day sometimes and still see all the crap, you know. And then other times, I'd have two glasses of white wine and I'd be really, really smashed. I just didn't know how it was going to be. And I was taking a lot of pills. You know, I was supposed to take this anti-seizure medication. And on top of it, I'm taking a lot of pills that you're just not supposed to take. Dalmine, Dexedrine, Valium. You know, I'm messing with this head of mine. It's already broken, you know. But you know us. And I was my own doctor and I was my own counselor. And I was I was managing my life right into Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And I didn't know that. I just kept going around and around in this little tight spiral of drinking and trying to live and be. And I had no people. I had no men in my life. I had no relationships. I had a girlfriend in high school. That was a hostage I took, you know. She she just listened to me, you know. I, yeah, yeah, she just listened. That was a relationship, you know. And I was just running around. Yeah, and, I, and my only companions were these two gay guys who didn't drink my wine. They did a lot of drugs. And they cleaned my house. <laughs> and that was my life. I didn't, I didn't have a relationship with my mom or my sisters. That was the only thing I was ever passionate about before Alcoholics Anonymous was music. It was the only thing I loved. And then the cruelest thing of all is alcoholism will cut away the only thing you love. And my drinking started to cut away my music. And then a day arrived when I didn't play anymore. And I just looked at the piano. And I kept telling myself I was going to do it tomorrow. And my phone calls weren't being answered. And that day arrived when I didn't go out of the house very much anymore. And I was just drinking. I was just drinking. I never wanted to die then. I just wanted to drink. And I just wanted to go back to, to, to this idea that I had about who I had been and who I wanted to be. And I was going to do it. I was always going to do it. You know? One day I was drinking with this secretary of mine and she got really violently ill and I kind of was helping her thinking she ought to join my health club, you know. <laughs> and she called me up the next day and said she joined AA. 
And I said, you're fired. And I, I just thought that was a dumb thing, you know. And I thought, well, who needs her, you know. And uh, I started going on my last bouts and rounds with alcohol. I, about three weeks uh, three weeks before I came to my first meeting, I, I ran into this woman, and she she loved AA. She'd been... She'd been going to AA meetings, and she didn't drink anymore, but she took quaaludes and smoked pot, so she thought AA meetings were great, you know. <laughs> People were nice, you know. And, and she'd been going to meetings, and and, uh, and she'd seen newcomers in AA that looked like me. You know, they were the ones that were, the, they were coming in on the bus to the meeting, you know, from the hospitals. And, and that's how I looked at the end of my drink. And I was fat. I was sweaty. I had unfocused, I had inability to just look at anything for very long. And I and I was just a wreck. I had dead hair, I was just dead all over. And she'd see newcomers in AA that looked like me. Now I want to kind of interrupt my narrative for a minute and talk to you about my beliefs about God. Because I believe that God doesn't waste anything. God is using the whole deal. And God is loving us every minute, drunk or sober. And God is using the whole deal. Because that's the way it's been for me. Like I said, I've always loved you. I've always known a connection. And I've always sensed something with alcoholics. For as long as I can remember, I've had this. You know, one time I remember walking around New York with Sweetwater before the car accident. And we were the shiny, glittery, up-and-coming rock and roll stars, you know. And we're walking down Broadway. And I saw this old drunk who peed all over himself. And he was laying on the ground. And he was wrapped around the corner of a brownstone. He was hugging that building with all his might. And I saw that. And that was a special moment for me. And I said to my companions, look at that. And they didn't see what I saw. You know, another time there was a woman in in a record company who was a member of AA. And I remember watching her carefully, you know, because there was something there that resonated in me. It was a, a thing about my life that haunted me all the way into sobriety, too. The one time I had a party in my rock and roll palace in Laurel Canyon when I was drinking. And, um... You know, a lot of people show up to these parties, and you don't know who's there, and they're just drinking around. And, and one night I was standing at the top of the stairs, and I looked down the bottom of the stairs, and there was a woman at the bottom of the stairs inside my house, and she was a young blonde lady. And everyone around her was this bacchanalia scene, you know, drinking. And I saw this woman standing in the middle of my party, looking like she just wanted to die. She was so miserable. And I didn't know what was wrong with her. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, I was in my second year of sobriety when she showed up at the club. And I learned that she'd been on a slip that night. And I had seen her pain. And I never forgot that. It taught me something. But God doesn't waste anything with us. And you know, this former secretary of mine was going to AA meetings and smoking pot and taking quaaludes, which is not sobriety in AA. But she was looking around meetings, and she read that 12th step on the wall, which said, we carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Now, she was smoking a joint and looking at me, and I'm in this party, and my only prayer, I was off pot. I thought pot was getting me in a lot of trouble, so I quit pot. (laughs) My only prayer was to drink and not fall down while the sun was up. And she was looking at me, and she was smoking a joint, and I'm just drinking a drink and looking at her. She took a big hit on her joint, and she said, 
You want to try AA. It's heavy. <laughs> I was appalled. What a terrible idea. Didn't she know who I was and that I was coming back? I was coming back. I had that delusion. You know, we're deluded people. And I was so deluded. I had no sense of what I was like. None. I should have been locked up. I had no sense of what I was like. I used to drive my car, this beautiful car, and stop it in the middle of the street and just get out and leave the doors open. And go in wherever I want. I had no sense. I didn't do the laundry. I bought a new one. I had no sense. I had to learn everything about living once I got to this program. I was just a female person. I had to grow up and be a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to learn how to say please and thank you and I don't know. I had to learn how to wear a dress. I was five years sober before I wore a dress. You know? And I was six years sober before I bought a lipstick. You know, and of course that's progressive. You know, perms and color and all that. But, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You had to civilize me. She said, you ought to join AA, it's heavy, and I thought, let me out of here. I went a few more rounds with alcohol after she paid her trust step calling me, and I, and I got beat up real bad, and I got a black eye, and I got a split lip, and I was really fat from drinking, and I was sweating. And one Sunday morning, I got up, and I had some sort of plan for the day, and my hand got up like this. It was just flopping around like a live fish on a bank. It was going crazy. And, you know, I looked at it. <laughs> It was, it was like, it was unbelievable. And I was just standing there trying to make a cup of coffee and this thing was out. It was, and I clutched it and I couldn't control it. I laid it on the counter. Nothing. I held it over my head. So I, I was having DTs, you know. But it was just unbelievable. And it just, it completely, to borrow from the vernacular of the 60s, this blew my mind. (laughs) I'd had a few run-ins with police. I'd hit a few parked cars. I'd fallen down a few stairs. I'd gotten some bruises. I'd had people insult me. But this blew my mind. It's a great moment, this moment. It, 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 this, this hand ushered in the moment of teachability because for one moment I was utterly without an excuse or a rationalization. I was, I was, the sociologists call it tabula rasa, blank, blank, blank. And so God took that opportunity to send me a postcard from the universe. He said, why don't you crawl AA again? Because I called AA once. I thought I'd call Westwood, because they might understand me in Westwood. (laughs) And a woman had answered the phone who talked too much (laughs) and didn't listen to me. And I knew AA was full of missionaries, and that wasn't going to work for me. But this moment of teachability, the silence in my head, allowed God to suggest that I call AA again. And you know, I did. And I was learning my first lesson in recovery. That you don't have to agree with the directions to do them. 
And I called AA again. I said, hi, it's me. There's more trouble over here. You know? <laughs> Great guy answered the phone. His name was Joe, and he listened to me. And, you know, our book says what first appears to be a flimsy read turns out to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And you see, I've already mentioned some of the little dotted flimsy reads in my story that turn out to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And this guy, Joe, was great. And he was on the phone, and, and he was listening to me. And I needed that. I needed it. I had a heart fall. And that was just right. Remember the first person that touched you, that was just right for you, where you heard the music of sobriety, and you heard it, and you said yes inside in your heart. That person was very special. Had to be. And there has to be a God who orchestrates all that, because we're all sort of nuts. You know? But you meet that one, and, and, and it's just like, that one fits you for that moment in time. It's miraculous. And this guy answered the phone, and his name was Joe, and he listened to me. And I had heart full. And he didn't cut me off, and he didn't just throw out a cliche or a page number in a book. He didn't say, oh, lady, you really got a drinking problem. He listened to me. And aha, uh -huh, I had an audience. Now the only problem was periodically I have to take a breath. And when I took a breath, he made his move. <laughs> and he said, sounds like you need a meeting. That old AA love behind the smile. It sounds like you need a meeting. And I was all wound up, and I took him through Glendale and rock and roll and who he were now. And I'd breathe, and he'd say, it sounds like you need a meeting. One more sentence, and you might have had a different speaker. You know how we are. One more sentence. But this was a, God was doing this. You know, and guess who got the last word? So I said, where's your meeting? And I, and I, uh, I put on clothes that could have gone on their own if I'd given them money and directions. You know, I was like. <laughs> I was cool, you know. And I had my black eye, and I put a lot of makeup on my other eyes, and my eyes would match, you know. And I, <laughs> and I just, you know, I thought, well, I'll just go there and be a fly on the wall. You know. <laughs> I walked up to this gorgeous Sunday noon meeting, which I thought was awfully early, to be out, you know, in Westwood. And it's called Ohio Street. And there you were. And there was a line of them in the front of that doorway. And they were saying, hi, welcome to AA. You know everybody. And welcome to me. And they were just, you know, the beautiful people of AA. And they had, you know, they had focused eyes. They could look at you. And they had current hairdos and their socks matched, you know. And they, and they could look at you. And it was it was just disgusting. You know, I had never seen anything like it. And it seemed to me, I had, this was like a Fellini movie. And I was in the middle of it to me. I just, it's, I had a big, massive pill pot wine hang overhead. So this is all an impression, you know. And it seemed to me that all these pink and white, squeaky clean people were running around the room going, Hi! We're so grateful to be sober! Are you new? Are you new? It was just like, Are you new? Are you new? It was like,
Their heads were like popping up like carnival dogs. Are you there? Are you there? Hi! Oh. I was just trying to be a fly on the wall, you know. Boy, I just hated my first meeting. Oh, man. It was, I sat by the door and they gave me phone numbers and I didn't ask for them. You know, and it, it was awful. I'd just sit there, don't talk to me, please. And the meeting began. And I never forgot the woman who led the meeting. She's been keeping me sober for 21 years. Because she was standing around that meeting and I never forgot how she looked. I was by the door. But this woman was in front of this meeting. And she was a, a lady and she was blonde. And she was standing there and she was having a ball. Being who she was, where she was, doing what she was doing with the people she was doing it with. And it was so attractive. She was beautiful from here, where we got the deal. And it was so attractive. And I never have forgotten how she looked. Because I never felt like that. You know, if you're a new woman here tonight, you may understand this. And if you've been around for a while, you may remember this. And I never felt like that. And I knew I never looked like that. And I left there and I went on another drunk and I went to one of these gay guys' pants and I'm drinking across the room from him and he's doing drugs, sniffing and snorting and beeping and honking across the room from me and I'm drinking and talking and you know, all of a sudden he took a break and he looked up at me and he said, you really got a drinking problem. <laughs> Isn't that wimpy? I mean, I wish I had a big bloody story to tell you, you know, some... I crawl around some jailhouse floor, but isn't that winter once in my drinking career have I walked away from liquor? Never. Not once. And I walked back into the night, and I don't remember what happened to me, but the next day was Monday, and I had a meeting directory, and I was uh, undecided. In California in June, it's overcast. Sometimes the sun comes out, sometimes it doesn't come out. And that morning I thought, I don't know if I need a meeting or a tan. So I put on a bikini, and I jumped in my fine car about 10 o'clock in the morning with my meeting directory, and I drove down to a church in Brentwood. And it was a noon meeting, and I got there two hours early, and I felt so tired, you know. And I got out on the lawn, and I laid down on my stomach on the lawn, and I went to sleep. And the gardeners mowed around me. And the sun didn't come out. And I went to my first meeting in a bikini. It was a woman's meeting. And I sat in the back of the door, and that was my first sober day. It was June 28, 1976. I sat in the back of that room, and I watched the women. You know, I didn't hear anything for just months and months and months that I can remember. There are little things that jump out. But I like to talk about the people of this program, because it wouldn't be a program without the people for me. I learn everything through the people. Oh, I can read, okay. You know, and I can do work. I can write inventories and I can do amends. But I learned it all. I learned how to do it through the people. I watch the people. I ask the people. And you know, I was watching these women and I, and I just couldn't get over the, the smell and the hair and the way that they were. And that book came around to me. It was a, it was a step study and it, I couldn't say I'm Nancy and I'm an alcoholic. It was just a lot of syllables. You know. I was used to the language of cool, which is only four words, monosyllables. And three of them are wow. 
we really make it tough on the newcomer with these uh, polysyllable words, don't we? Gratitude, serenity, anonymity, you know, alcoholic. I didn't hear a thing. I left that meeting, and a woman walked out beside me, and her name was Anne, and she invited me back another day. Now, no one was inviting me anywhere. No one answered my calls. I had no relationships. But this woman walked beside me. She wasn't afraid of me. She didn't look down at me. She didn't like me because I'd be pretty if I cleaned up. She didn't like me because I was smart. She didn't like me because I sang. She didn't know anything about me. But she cared about me. And you know, alcohol can feel that. We do feel that. You know, we're, we're, we're new, but we're not stupid. We're new, we're broken. We're not stupid. And I, I came back. I was just seduced back in here. You know, by these people. And their hugs and their smiles. I didn't really like to let anybody hug me. But somebody hugged me and when I had five days and saved my life. That was the day I sold my box of dope. I sold it for $30. And I was abandoned and I was scared. And I was in a meeting and this woman saw my eyes. And she walked from the middle of the room to the back of this long hall. And she sat down beside me. It was crowded. I don't know how she saw me except for God. She put her arms around my shoulders and she didn't let go. She didn't let go. I don't know what she said, but she didn't let go. When I had seven days, I got my ego back. I had it all figured out at seven days. How I could just sort of sneak around for a while and then I'd get out of here. And I figured out how meetings work. If the meeting started at 8, you got there at 7.59. When it was over, you said, Amen, and you got the heck out of there before these people started working the deal on you. And I never went to meetings with titles like Finding God, Save Yourself with the Steps, Grace and Serenity. I hated meetings like that. I was young. I wanted to go to happening meetings, you know. So I, I looked for meetings that sounded like bars, you know. And there was one in the directory that said Joe's Place. Joe's Place. I, I got to go find out what's going on at Joe's Place, you know. And it started at 8 o'clock, so I got there at 7.59. And there were no seats left except there's one chair in the last row. Little guy sitting on the chair next to it. He wouldn't hurt me. So I sat down in that chair and I turned to this little guy and I said, I have seven days. My ego was back here. And he looked at me and he said, Would you like to be our first speaker? There's that flimsy reed again. What first appears to be a flimsy reed. Because, you know, the format of this meeting was they had a, a good carry-the-message speaker and they had a little token newcomer in the beginning, a 10-minute speaker. And I sat now next to the speaker together. You know, so he said, would you like to be our first speaker? I thought, oh, boy, would I? You know, and I got all fired up. I knew what I was going to tell you. I was going to I was gonna push you away and pull you in at the same time. I was going to straighten out the... You know, the book. I was going to suggest some things about this. You got to back off this are you new stuff. You know, I was going to help you make this a hipper deal. And I was just making all these speeches, you know, as the, er, the reading started. And then they called my name and I walked up there and I had a, I, it was great. I was great. You know, and I got up to the podium and I said, I missed my booze and my pills and my pals. But I guess I'll keep coming back. 
And inside I'm going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and you know what they did. And I thought, what is that? <laughs> and I was being seduced back in here by my own defect. <laughs> they think I'm great. And I came in, you know, I just, oh, I always had a sour face. Yeah, I was a sour puss, man. I just, then I got 55 days of sobriety, and I remember it's another moment. These early moments in sobriety are such treasures. I remember 55 days of sobriety coming to in the back of the meeting, laughing from my gut. You know, it was such a good feeling. Man. And then I realized I'd forgotten how to laugh. I laugh from drinks, and I laugh from mean things that you say about people. But in AA, I was learning how to laugh from the center of me, from where I live. From those great fun times when you're a kid. Because that's what we do. We get to be kids together. Every day. Every day. This is such a beautiful conference. Every speaker has showed you the enthusiasm for this program. We have to keep it. We have to be kids every day. You know, and I learned this in AA. I learned everything in AA that counts. I learned how to give Christmas gifts in Christmas time. I learned how to show up. I learned how to help somebody else. You know, and I had had 82 days of sobriety when I got the real heart of this deal. For 81 days, I've been going to meetings, you know, and it, it wasn't directed at me. I didn't really catch it, you know, and it, I only knew about me. It was a, you know, I didn't even know there were other newcomers until I had about a year. You know, I saw them up there, but, you know, I was just like, me, 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 me. And I, I had been going to meetings like that for 81 days. And I went outside this place in Studio City called the Rapture Club in North Hollywood. And I was just standing out there after the noon meeting one day. And I was just standing there looking around. And I experienced one of the other promises of this program. Where you just kind of get this great okayness about you. I never felt okay. I always felt dramatic. I was high, I was alone, I was a therapist, I was like, all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I feel okay. It was like the great winds of okayness came blowing through, you know? And all of a sudden, I looked over here about 20 feet away from me, and I saw her. She was standing there, clutching her jaw, you know, and she had the hair hanging down here, and an old t-shirt, she looked around, hating the deal, you know. And I saw her. And my feet took off. <laughs> I got up to her, and my hand went out, and I said, Hi, I'm so grateful to be sober. Are you new? Yeah. And I jumped in the pool. And the water's fine. Because that was the center of this thing. One drunk reaching out to another. Are you new? Hi. You know, I jumped in the deal and the water's fine. And then I just started, started being here. And I started working the deal. I got, I had lots of money. I didn't go back to work. I just went to AA meetings. I, I, I institutionalized myself in AA meetings. I loved AA meetings. 
You know, I had I had a, about four months of sobriety in the Raptor Club. They had these real cups, and they said, you know, if you if you clean up here for every cup you wash, you'll get another day of sobriety. And I had enough brain damage. I bought this thing, you know. Yeah. And I started to run back to that kitchen, you know. And I, I'd get back to that kitchen in front of a little steel sink full of soap. And, I, and, and at the end of the meeting, and, and in would come the heroes of the noon meeting. And somebody Bo was talking about heroes today. And I had heroes in this program. And these heroes of the noon meeting, Alabi, Mike R., Mel R., Rosemary. They come in, they give me these cups, you know, with the cigarettes in the bottom, little lipstick grins on the side, you know. And they'd say to me, oh, Nancy, you're doing a good job. You know, it was like, you know, I told you all this stuff. I mean, I had four albums out there. I've been all over the country many times. I've been on this TV. I've thrown up on some very famous shoes. (laughs) But when the heroes of the new meeting say, oh, Nancy, you're doing a good job. I could have just died and been very grateful for what God had given me in just those few months. I was full. That's a good thing that we do. I was too sick to do much more than that. I didn't know it. I went on for a little while, about seven months, and then this fellow showed up in the back of the room, and he had a big, real hair, and he was skinny, these big eyes, and he'd lost the power of speech, too. His name was Angelo. He was a drug addict. And he heard him say, for every cup you wash, you get another day of sobriety. And now I had a problem. <laughs> we'd get to the end of the meeting, you know, we'd say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Race back there. <laughs> and those drug addicts are fast, you know. But actually, I had all the time in the world, and I was learning about how AA works. And I learned how to step back from the sink and let Angelo come in. And I got to join the heroes from the noon meeting. And I got to come in and say, oh, Angelo, you're doing a good job. (laughs) And I began to grow in the safe womb here. And I stayed here for a long time to learn how to be a person, because I really did not know. I didn't even know how to speak very well. I couldn't read the book. It took me nine months to be able to read the book and retain any of it. I couldn't remember the beginning of the sentence when I get to the end. And they told me at Radford, that's okay. We'll tell you what's in there. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I trusted them. I believed them because of the stories and because I watched how they lived. And I wanted that. I'd been around all these crazy people all my life. And I didn't know what goodness was like until I got here, you know, and then I ran into the God problem, oh my, God, oh no, not God, and for a while I thought, maybe I can do this deal without God, but you know how it is when you get to the fixing place, every meeting you go to is talking about God, or you get to the inventory place, every meeting is talking about the inventory, you get to the immense place, they're all talking about immense, it's this conspiracy, <laughs> orchestrated, you know, and I it just, one day I just thought, oh no, if this is the last day I can be in Alcoholics Anonymous because I can't do the God thing. Now, I had the habit of going to meetings, and I had nowhere else to go. And it was a Saturday. So I started going to the meeting in the morning, and I went all day long to meetings. And I kept waiting to hear my answer. 
some way that I could stay but not have to do the God thing, you know, some way. Finally, that night I got to my last meeting in Little Chandler Lodge in North Hollywood. It was a candlelight meeting. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I absolutely need some help. So it was a candlelight meeting. And once the meeting started, I got my hand up there and I cried. I said, oh, I just need, I just can't get the God thing. Is I can't, I'm going to have to leave AA because of the God. And I did a great job. I was very good. And then I was done and I waited for someone to help me. You know, the sharing started, I don't know, any minute now, these good people there are going to help me. You know, the meeting went on, nobody helped me. All of a sudden it was over, nobody helped me. And I was pretty shook up. They cleaned up, people were gone, the lights were on again, I'm sitting there and now I'm in trouble. Because I had talked and cried myself into a corner. Nobody helped me. Then this big old guy came up to me. And he was sober 21 years, his name was Jack. And he was very bald and very big and he worked on a railroad. And he came up behind me. He used to sit in front of the club with a net and catch people just hanging off the edge of AA. That was his job. He came up behind me and he said in this big deep voice, Nancy. And I was just, I was weak from all my crying and my new dilemma, you know. And he handed me a little napkin, you know, that we use when we, when we serve cakes and cookies and put it down in front of me. And he said, he wanted me to write down all the qualities that I would have God if I could make up my own God. And so I, I started to write things. Because he was big and me, you know. <laughs> and then I kind of got into it. I wrote that God was a good God, that he loved me, that he was a funny God, you know. And I started to write these things. And, you know, I wrote and I wrote. And I finally I couldn't think of anything else. So I handed it to him. And he took it from me, and he didn't give it a cursory glance. You know, he took it from me, and he wouldn't didn't patronize me. He took it from me, and he studied it. And I waited. And he studied it, and I waited. Then he looked up, and he said, is that all? And my heart, I thought, oh, God, I forgot the only thing that could have saved me, you know. But I looked at him, and I knew that I had to be honest. And I said, yes. And he looked back down again for a minute, and then he handed it back to me, and he said, that's God, kid. See you in the meeting tomorrow. (laughs) And it was God. That moment, that time, that net to keep me here, that was God. What first appears to be a flimsy reed turns out to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And I just started through this program, through those steps. Worked them just enough to hold my own in a step study, you know. And I got active, and I became secretary of a lot of meetings. Got a year of sobriety, and there was a fellow in the back of the room with blue eyes and curly blonde hair, and he got a year of sobriety. So we went on a date. (laughs) We went roller skating in Orange County. And I tell this story because it's like a little metaphor. (laughs) You know when you haven't been roller skating for a while, and you first put on your skates, and you stand up, and you're doing this? He was doing this, and he stood up, and he looked at me, and he said, You're not going to hold on to me, are you? And I looked at him, and I I said, No, and I thought, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And the next day, we moved in together. Now I was an A couple. 
And I started working on this image like keeping a park statue, you know. I didn't go to work. I ran around AA. I was active. I sponsored lots of girls. And I talked, you know. And now I was an AA couple. I needed something because I hated me. I needed something. I needed this. We got a couple years. We moved from North Hollywood down to Laguna Beach. We moved down to Laguna Beach. And, uh, I started doing the same thing in Laguna Beach that I was doing in North Hollywood. Running around AA and I was talking, you know, doing a show business thing here right at the podium. Talking away. And I was just working steps enough to hold my own in the step study. And I didn't go to work. And, uh, well, you can imagine how we got along based on the, the, the uh, foundation we laid there and moving in together. And, you know, one morning we woke up and we just weren't getting along. And so we said, we're not getting along. Let's get married. <laughs> now, when you do this, we had to find somebody to marry us, you know, and we looked in this little rag called the Penny Saver. There's a guy in there who advertised, his name was Reverend Wright. And he used to advertise, marry today, call Reverend right now. <laughs> we didn't call the old sponsor. We called Reverend right now. You know, I had a, I had a, a lot of problems with sponsorship. I had, a, I had eight sponsors by the time I was ten years sober. And then I got another sponsor and I had her for the next nine years. She was, she got better. <laughs> I must have been the baby from hell, but I had learned how to be a baby in this program, and it's been a slow process, believe me. We got married, and, and this guy had mustard on his tie, and he was making bets at the track before he married us and after. And, and a, a year later, I, I came home from a, a meeting, and I was going to write another inventory on this poor marriage because I just knew I was doing something wrong. I was doing something wrong. How come I couldn't make that marriage perfect? I would, I clean the house all the time. I had two floors of hardwood floors and I cleaned them all the time. And I cooked, I finally learned how to cook, you know. Why couldn't I make this marriage work? And I walked in the door and my husband was drunk. He was very drunk. And it was a moment for me when I, I, uh, was protected by higher power. Because in that moment, it was the worst pain I've ever felt in sobriety. It was a pain for me and for him. And it was a pain of this joke. And it was just this loss. And I, I, um, I just went off to AA. I left and, uh, um, <clears throat> that was a, a really, really sad thing. And then, uh, we've split up and I was down in Laguna Beach and I had no resume. I've been sober five, four years. I was in my fifth year. And I didn't have any job skills except almost five years in AA, you know, and a few years in rock and roll. And I uh, had that all over garage sale, and I, I got off the podiums, and I stopped talking like I knew something. And I started to work the steps for real inside deep. And uh, all my stuff, I had spent it. I'd spent all my money. I'd spent all my people sober. And I just, I just sat down in AA and got quiet, and I got to work on me. I moved into a little garage in North Laguna. It was a nice little studio, but it was a garage, you know. And uh, I became a house cleaner. And I started cleaning houses. So now I had to learn how to go to work 
and be responsible. And uh, I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't have enough money. And I heard about college. And they had money in college. And you got financial aid if you went to college. So I said, well, I'm not doing very well as a house cleaner. So I went back to college for money. And I lucked out. My brain, what was left of it, you know, caught fire in school. And I had become, at last, teachable. Um, and I, I began to learn about the world. And there was so much more here. And this is a fantastic place. We live in a fantastic place with all of its pain and flaws. And I used to learn about art and literature and a little bit about medicine, a little bit about sociology and all these goodies. It was like this great experience. Man, you know, as I, I turned my eyes up from just trapping myself in AA and trapping myself in rock and roll. And I began to learn that I was a part of something really wonderful. And it was wonderful. I loved it. I got three degrees, and I, I, uh, <laughs> and you know, there was a, a, a great healing with my mom and with my sisters, and, and my mom became proud of me, and, uh, my mom liked to hear what I was doing now, you know, and, uh, and that was good. Uh, my sister, one of my sisters, uh, went into Alcoholics Anonymous. I finally, well, I started, I was, she had been a drinking buddy of mine, and I tried to, I tried to snag her into this deal every which way, and I, I totally understand the Al-Anon pain because of this. And every sponsor had said, leave her alone, don't do it, stop nagging her, you know, and, and I just kept on her, kept on her, and we had a big fight when I was about 11 years sober, and she didn't talk to me anymore, and then when I was 12 years sober, after not speaking to me for a year, she joined AA in, you know, Washington. Can you believe it? All by herself. <laughs> so it seemed like everything was going to be good my big dream uh, when I got sober was that this whole family everyone in my family should go to the anonymous program of their choice I wanted to have this white picket fence recovery with all these happy thanksgivings where we talk about the third step and we talk about the fourth step and we had this great you know it never happened never happened um, I became a college English teacher in 1990, and I started teaching and uh, driving around all these community colleges and, and a couple universities in Southern California and teaching. And now I was back in the world. I had to learn how to work in the world. I, I cleaned houses through my bachelor's degree. In my master's program, I learned how to teach writing. And uh, and I had to put on a dress and go to work. And uh, and I had to I had to be responsible and I had to pay attention. And I've been having a ball doing it. It's really tough to get a full-time gig, and, and it, I'm reaching a crisis point there with this thing. But, but teaching suited me for a long, long time. You know, it was a great joy. It was a great joy to practice this program in the classroom, and they didn't even know it. <laughs> they didn't even know it. I tell you a story about that. One of my classes, I had a, you know the classic young drunk, and he always showed up late. You know, always late, and he slammed the door open. We were in classes in session. The door slams open. He stands there, framed by the door, you know. <laughs> Mr. I am. <laughs> and he came in the room, and he had to bump through all the desks, you know. And, and uh, I looked at this kid, and I thought, man, in that same class, I had another guy who'd been in Vietnam, 
and had a hard life. And he wrote to me about his life. And he wrote to me about being a sober member of this program and how much he loved it. And I had the other guy and I had this guy. And I put them in a group together. (laughs) (laughs) Now we'll see what happens. Have a lot of fun teaching. I had one other story just happened. I had a class. It was an introduction to university studies. I just taught and I had three fine strapping peace officers from the probation department who were there to get their degrees so they could advance in their careers. In my opening night comments, I tell them some of my background, some of my accomplishments, you know, with the degrees and so forth, and some things I've written. And, and, I, and I try to be encouraging about these returning adult learners. And I say, you know, once I was a juvenile delinquent. And the three of them said, what? <laughs> so, as, you know, God is always tucking little jokes into your life. Like your mom used to put notes in your lunch bucket. They're all over, you know. I had a... My sister uh, that got sober in AA left AA after five years. She looked around one day and she said, alcoholics are all selfish. And, and uh, But this time I just learned to stay out of that. And I just turned to pray, pray for her. Uh, a few years ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer just about the time I ran into Kelly. And uh, she was diagnosed with, a, diagnosed with this cancer and it was summertime. And uh, I was teaching summer school and living in Orange County and driving back to Glendale every weekend to take my mom to chemotherapy and to be with her. Anna, thank you. I couldn't be with my mom before. I had already learned through the women of this program how to be a friend. I learned how to, I'd learned how to put my arms around people too. I learned how to love somebody right where they are. I learned that people don't need to understand me. I need to understand them. And I need to love them. You know, and thank you. I don't know you personally, but I know you. And I, I got to be with my mom. I got to take her and sit across the kitchen table from her and listen to her. And it was really cool. It was very hard, though. And I, I, I like to sound like, you know, it was, it was easy to do, but I had to call. I used the phone, you know, phone therapy, like we tell the newcomers. I was 18 years sober, and I was on that phone calling, calling. This is so hard. And you said, you're doing a good job. You're doing it. You know, and then I could turn to my mom and I could be there for her by leaning on you. And uh, the last month of her life, I moved into her little house with her. And, you know, God doesn't waste anything. And this AA dropout sister of mine, she came to California from back east and she moved into this little house, too. And side by side, we midwifed our mom back to our dad and to her parents. And uh, thank you. I thank you. She was something, though. You know, I thought, oh, man. She kept wanting to argue about AA. And she kept wanting to tell me, you know, that AA was a bunch of this and a bunch of that. You know, and I I, I said, you know, it's just not for everybody, Jane, you know. And uh, one time she was standing beside me and she said, boy, Alcoholics Anonymous is full of those sunshine soldiers, isn't it? And I got on the phone and I said, she says we're sunshine soldiers. <laughs> and that's what you did. You laughed and you said, we've been called much worse. <laughs> we have to practice the principles in all our affairs. We stop fighting everything and everybody. And I learned that 
Disturbed I might be, I had to take those to safe places, to my AA support system, because we just love each other here so good. And, you know, I listened to cancer went to my mom's brain, and she would rave 24 hours a day. It was horrible. I know some of you know this experience. It, and I just wanted to run. And the old me just would have run. But she said, you're doing a good job. You can do it. And she went back in her hallucinations to the happiest time of her life when she was a young bride in her 30s. And, uh, and they were shopping with their husbands, her and her girlfriends. And, uh, and she went back to these times, and I sat on the edge of the bed, and I held her hand, and I played all the other parts so she wouldn't have to go along. And I thank you for that, because I can't do that on my own. And uh, she died, and they carried her body out at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I went to the phone, and my my AA dropout took off. And, and my, I had another sister, and she took off, and I went to the phone. And I called uh, my friend in Orange County. I said, come. And she she didn't say, oh, oh I have to go meet a newcomer. Oh, I have a hair appointment that's so hard to get. You know, she says, you're 18, why don't you go to a meeting? She didn't say that. She came right away. And she walked beside me. And I just kind of leaned on her. And Bo talked about this experience. And it is real in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you can't buy it. It's not for sale. But it is real. And the people came around me. I don't remember anything anybody said. But when I saw you there at that time, it was my constant reminder of who I was. You know, it was all I needed. I remember the day of the rosary. I opened the refrigerator in my mom's house, and the AA dropout had stocked it up with, you know, vodka and stuff. I got on the phone, and I called all the sunshine soldiers, and they came. We clicked around those rosary beads like we'd never been gone, you know. A couple of years later, uh, or a year later, I moved back to Los Angeles, and um, I began to teach up there. And uh, along came this tall Irishman who played the fiddle and wrote poems, went to a lot of AA meetings, and we're having a good time. And I learned how to be there. I hadn't been in a relationship with a man for uh, about 15 years. After my divorce and one other affair, I just, I just immersed myself in a safe place in this program without the entanglement of romance with anybody. I just, I couldn't do it. I was just burnt out on it. I didn't know how to do it. But it was a growing time. And I learned to be a sister. And I learned how to mother other women. And I learned how to go and how to be a whole person in those years. So when I met Mick, I was able to be with him, you know. And it's been a, it's been a really good time. I bought my first house. My mother's death, I received, you know, my portion of her house, and I bought my first house in Tahunga. Now, Tahunga is a very nice place, and I have pine trees in the front yard, and I have squirrels that, that chatter at me every day. And I start my day by writing. I write every day. I write in a journal every day, and I meditate, and then I go to work. And, uh, and my life is very rich today. And I look forward to it every day because it's new and you never stop learning in this deal. I'm in a new place now. I've gotten so much this weekend that I need to take home and to work on me. I've got this financial area and it's a serious thing and I need to work on me because I still have a little magical thing that wants to put it off and put it off and put it off. But it's time. And maybe God doesn't want me to be a teacher. I don't know. 
One of the other miracles of moving back to Los Angeles is that Sweetwater got back together. Now, there's only three of us alive. And we're a little bit heavier than we were. And some are missing some hair, you know. But but a couple years ago, we said, hey, let's get in on this comeback thing, you know. And actually, those, both those guys are kind of like earth people. They hardly ever drank or used. In fact, the bass player was an embarrassment in the 60s because we went on the road and he went to mass on Sunday. <laughs> we used to have to hide that guy. You know? <laughs> oh, God. But the Catholic thing works because he remembers a lot of what happened. You know, <laughs> tells me that. And, you know, we played a few times at the Roxy and at the Whiskey, and we had our first gig at the International Convention. And the AA friends and lovers and pals and sponsees come. And, you know, it's just such a pleasure. It's such a full life here with you guys. That's why I said it's about the people for me, because by myself, I can't do this thing. I can't do it without you. And I always look forward to the next thing we're going to do, whatever that's going to be, you know. And uh, I want to thank you for your eyes and your time. You've helped me so much this weekend. And uh, i got a lot of work to do, and I love you. Thank you.